Reflections on St. Paul's Letter to the Romans by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 We're about to study Paul's Letter to the Romans, which I think is one of the most amazing and important documents in existence. And it was the first really profound articulation of the meaning of the crucifixion and so on. It's unbelievably powerful. So but I feel a little, I feel a little daunted by the task of presiding over a review of it. As you probably know, the New Testament consists of three major blocks of material. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Johannine documents, the Gospel of John and the letters, and the Pauline and Deuteropauline letters, that is to say the letters of Paul and the letters of those who were influenced by Paul. So those are the three major blocks of the New Testament, and the largest of the three is the Pauline material. Paul and Deuteropauline letters make up half of the New Testament. But, of course, they haven't gotten half of the attention. And perhaps that's appropriate, of course, because the Gospels tell the essential story, the crucial story of the crucifixion and resurrection, and they give us that in a narrative form that's, that's extremely powerful and important. On the other hand, what Paul did in his letters was to give the first and, I think, definitive articulation of the meaning of all of that. And so it's incredibly important material for understanding the enormous claims that the New Testament makes about the life and death of Jesus and the revelation that the cross has, uh, has provided the world. So... What I want to do today is simply uh, create a backdrop for the study of Paul's letter to the Romans. Probably the most important, one could argue it in many ways, you know, but certainly Paul's letter to the Romans is among the most important documents we have in the, in uh, the Christian tradition. No doubt about it. And probably <coughs> as important as any of his writings in the New Testament. And so what I want to do is to prepare us to make a little journey through that. And today I'm, what I'm going to do is very briefly introduce the, the historical background of the, of the letter <clears throat> and then try to introduce the uh, anthropological and religious background by going to other texts, text in the Hebrew Bible and in uh the New Testament, other writings of Paul, and uh, also the Acts of the Apostles and so on, to try to create a background so we can appreciate what it is Paul's talking about. Let me begin by pointing out that Paul was a diaspora Jew. The Jews had been, since the Babylonian exile, had been scattered around the Middle East, and those Jews who were outside of Judea, outside of Palestine, outside of uh, uh, beyond the orbit, the immediate orbit of Jerusalem and its temple were diaspora Jews who were more 
absorbed in the prevailing dominant culture of the time than the Jews in Palestine. After the building of the Second Temple, up until the temple was destroyed in the year 70, the Jews in Jerusalem had their enormous temple shrine. Their, their religion was temple-centered. They had a, an existing powerful cult uh, and a focus and so on. And so they could remain more uh, insular with respect to the dominant cultures of the, of the region than could the diaspora Jews who, had, who did not have that intense focus. And the two dominant cultures, of course, were, were Greek and Roman, but they were not exactly, we, as we say, you know, we say the Greco-Roman, and that's appropriate because uh, at, the level of, at the level of philosophy, thought, art, and so on, it was Greek culture that dominated at the level of politics and, and uh, political and social arrangements and so on. It was Roman culture that dominated. So the diaspora Jews were in a world where, th- where this combined cultural force was very powerful. What makes Paul interesting is that he was not only a diaspora Jew and therefore more cosmopolitan, but he was also a Pharisee, which was the group so, so firmly and rigorously committed to obeying every jot and tittle of the Mosaic law in an attempt to be the pure ones. The, the term Pharisee means the pure one. So Paul had both of these elements in his, in his makeup. He was a cosmopolitan diaspora Jew, and he was intensely committed to the fulfilling of the Mosaic law as Pharisees of his time were. He was converted in a very dramatic way that we all know about, but I'm going to, come, I'm going to re- go and look at the text that describe it here in a little bit. He was converted probably in the early 40s of the first century, very soon, really, after the crucifixion. The crucifixion probably happened in the mid-30s, and Paul experienced his conversion in the early 40s. He's writing the letter to the Romans in the late 50s, so roughly 15 years after his conversion, and at the height of his evangelical power, after he's already been through many controversies. He has had 15 years to work out the implications of his of his conversion and his understanding of the revelation of the cross. And he's now expressing that in a very systematic way to a Christian community in Rome, a community he has had no hand in forming. Most of Paul's letters are written to communities that he helped form. And there's an interesting thing about Paul's letters, and that is that they are secondary. Paul went around and preached to these communities and brought them into existence, and he preached this message, the message of freedom. He said, we are now free. The cross has freed us. And uh, he, he nuanced that message in whatever way he did, but he left people exhilarated with this idea of freedom. And then he left town because... He, he's the most peripatetic of guys. You know, he was traveling everywhere. He was all over the map. Tremendous energy, not only physical stamina, but uh, intellectual energy. I mean, he, Paul is the one guy, he would stand firm. If he knew something was true, he stood like a rock against any opposition. He was tenacious like a bulldog. 
I mean, this guy would have been a tough guy to live with. <laughs> but thank God we had him because he held on to some to, to some of the most radical implications of the Christian revelation. But in any event, in most I, I get I digress here. He most of his letters are written to communities he helped bring into being. And why did he write the letters? The reason the letters are so interesting to us is because he preached this message of freedom and then he went on to, to the next place where he was going to try to proselytize. And then slowly word caught up to him what was happening in the, in the wake of his missionary work. And he looks over his shoulder and he sees these communities that had heard, heard his message of freedom and they often they sort of fell out in one or two ways. One is he would leave town and they would say, well, he couldn't really have meant freedom quite that way, you know. So they would slowly begin to hunker down again around the religious rules and uh, practices and and uh, so on and so forth. Precisely what you'll see in the letter to Romans, he's saying we're now beyond that. The other, and and when he got wind of that, he would have to write them a letter and say, no, let me, let me assure you. And then Romans is, is really in this category of letters saying, wait, you can't put the toothpaste back in a tube. It's over, folks. We are free now. For better or worse, you're going to have to come to grips with that fact. On the other hand, sometimes he would leave and these communities would just say, hey, he said freedom, let your hair down, this is it, you know, and they would just indulge in all kinds of licentiousness. This didn't happen as often as Paul's critics claim it happened, you know. Paul's critics were always saying, you know, if you preach that, these people are going to go crazy. These people are going to are, are going to become, uh, uh, you know, uh, totally licentious. It didn't happen like that, but there were cases of that. Obviously, that's why the people. That's why this criticism came Paul's way. So Paul then had to write back to say to these people, "No, you know what? You're free, but you've got to behave yourself." In a sense, what he had to say was that 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 the the business of freedom and obedience is a paradoxical business. And you have to understand that. And there's some of that towards the end of the letter to the Romans as well. So that's the kind of that's the kind of context in which Paul's letters uh, arise. So, in, but in this case, he's writing to a community he's never visited, and a community that he had no hand in forming. He's writing from some place in the Eastern Mediterranean. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's delivering money collected in the Gentile missions to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's experiencing a famine, and he's bringing money to Jerusalem to help with the famine relief. This is this is the church, the typical church kind of activity that was going on even at that time. But he's writing to the people in Rome, saying, "After I go to Jerusalem, I'm coming to to Rome because I want to I want to use Rome as a launching pad for a new missionary thrust into the West, and I want to go to Spain." So he's writing them, trying to explain his gospel to them, so that when he gets there, he, he, his, his uh, reception will be such that he will be able to uh, take advantage of the help from the Roman Christians and make a move into the West. There's, there's practically nothing as profound as this letter anywhere, I think. And the implications are unbelievably sweeping, vast implications that have, in the context of which the issue about Christ, the relationship between Christianity and Judaism 
is a minor one, but it's the one which precipitated Paul's great vision of what Christianity really is. It's the one, you know, Christian. You could say, in a way, the Christian movement has not been overly theological or speculative. It tends to theologize only when it gets in a pinch. It tends to conceptualize or create dogmas or doctrines only when it gets in a pinch. So the great councils of the church have always been brought about by tremendous controversies that somebody had to sort out. And so the doctrines came out of the sorting out process. But it always comes out of an existing uh, gestalt and not out of somebody thinking, well, what might it be, you know, dreaming of what the implications might be. And that's very much true of Paul. He preached the gospel and then he saw what was happening and went back and tried to sort it out and clarify and conceptualize and and so on. My friend Jeff Wood says, Paul's letter to the Romans is like a landmine that somebody steps on about every 500 years. (laughs) Augustine stepped on it. Luther stepped on it. And you could say that the Catholic biblical scholars stepped on it in the 40s. That's what gave rise to the Second Vatican Council. And Paul Johnson, the British historian, says it is, quote, the most thought-provoking of all Christian documents, one that forces its readers to reconsider their their whole understanding of religion. So if six weeks from now you haven't been forced to reconsider your whole understanding of religion, then we will not have done justice to this to this document. I want to start and end today with something by by uh, Anders Nygren. Nygren is a Swiss Protestant theologian who wrote a commentary on Romans uh, published 50 years ago. And I want to start with a warning. So here's what he says. It is hardly possible to avoid misconstruction of Paul's meaning if we come to it with today's thought forms and axiomatic propositions, to words which he used, excuse me, to words which he used to define intent, we give meanings that are not true to his mind. We give dogmatic and psychological meanings to his words, without being aware that by doing so we do violence to them. Dogmatic or psychological? Where, why that? Because most people who take the time to read this letter uh, are either uh, sort of committed Christians who already have the doctrine in their head, and uh, they hear it echoed in this in this letter, or they're inhabitants of our age, in our age of psychological age. So they become concerned with the psychology of Paul's experience, the phenomenology of Paul's conversion and theology. And I think Nigrin is absolutely right. We have to resist either of those impulses to read into this this letter existing doctrine or to think of it psychologically. I think maybe the latter is an even greater mistake than the former because the doctrines at least were born of some contact with this letter whereas the psychological uh, premise of our age is completely alien from what Paul's trying to do. And in a certain sense, 
it's one of the ways in which we ward off uh, the the message that Paul's trying to uh, convey. Okay, then Nigran goes on. If without other preparation than our traditional conceptions, we turn to the reading of Romans, the strange likelihood is that in the first four chapters we shall find the understanding of justification with which we approached it. Justific- the, whole, the letter of Romans is about justification or righteousness, a new kind of justification, a justification from God, not the justification that comes from obeying the rule, but the justification that comes th- graciously, unearned justification that comes from God. Um, so, Magnus. We look upon his words as though they were directed to certain mundane and psychological issues. For example, for us, faith is thought of as an inner quality, a subjective condition. And for us, righteousness is viewed as a state of ethical well-being. And peace peace with God is held to be a psychological state of tranquility, and so on and so forth. And by harboring these these uh, premises, we miss the whole point of what Paul's doing. And finally, Nigrin, because that which is overlooked by such a view is precisely the characteristic Pauline meaning pervading all these terms. Okay, so I would say what I want to show today, I want to say it now, and then I want to try to show that it's the case very gradually. Paul's thought is eschatological. Uh, the es- uh, by that I mean the eschaton means the end time. It's a, it's a, it's a New Testament idea, New Testament vision, and that is that there are two ages, this age and the age that is groaning, and to use one of Paul's uh, images, that's the, the, the age that, that is now, uh, the, the world is groaning, giving birth to this new age. Now these ages, or what Paul, in Greek, eons, they are not chronologically uh, sequential. They coexist. They both exist at the same time. One exists, this age exists in fact. It's the, it's the, it's, it's the world in which we live and move and have our non-being. Right? And it's very much with us. The world is very much with us. It's, it's what imbues us with its conceptualizations and so on. And then there is then there is this uh, the, the, the revealed age, the eon that is revealed in the eschaton. We see it on the horizon, and but we see it as the truth about the present age. And so even though the present age is in, engulfed and encapsulated in its own preconceptions about itself and its own mechanisms and so on, uh, the, the eschatological vision has in some sense liberated us from its grip. We're still living in the, it, its sort of spiritual economy, condemned to its spiritual economy in some way. But we've been liberated to it because we have seen its conditionality, its provisionality. You see, And that in itself breaks the grip. As soon as you see its conditionality, you're, to some really important extent, you're free of it. So, for Paul, Paul's thinking is eschatological because he's seen the, re- the crucifixion has revealed to him the perversity of this age. 
It sums up the perversity of this age perfectly. And he has seen in the risen Christ the truth about reality, which for him is the, is the eon that is to come. So I would say, uh, let's remember, Paul's thought is eschatological, not theological, fundamentally, and not especially not psychological. Paul's thinking finally leads to a a revelation of such unbelievable, unbelievably important spiritual significance. But the irony is, I think the irony is, not only can we not get there by trying to analyze it psychologically or dog, dogmatically or even theologically, you can't get there. So there's a tremendous spiritual revelation in this text. But if you try to get there psychologically, theologically, doctrinally, you can't. If you try to get there spiritually, you can't. I, I say, if you enter this thing, say, oh, well, Paul's a mystic. I'm going to sit down and read this. This is a mystical track. He's talking about the body of Christ and the this and that. And you get into the mysticism of it. I don't think you get to the depth of it. I think the paradox is that you only get to the real spiritual depth of this thing by entering it anthropologically. We don't have to be mystics to get to the spiritual power of this letter. We just have to understand the scope and significance of what he's saying. And I think we do that best by approaching it anthropologically. So I would say that the anthropological approach is more apt in the end to lead to the spiritual significance of the letter, more apt even than a spiritual approach. And I would say that Paul's experience, you know, everything always comes back to Paul's experience, the road to Damascus or whatever his experience with with uh, the risen Christ and so on, and people talk about Paul's experience. And I would say Paul's experience is not fundamentally a mystical one. It is fundamentally a moral one. But again, we could get off base by getting too caught up in that idea. I think, I would say, that Paul's fundamental experience is a moral one, but one that occurred at such a profound depth that it deconstructed all the moral categories so that it was fundamentally a moral experience, but so profound that it erased the whole ethical grid. It demolished the whole ethical grid. And when Paul says, when Paul says, through the law, I died to the law, that's it. It was a moral revelation of such profundity that the moral grid work was destroyed by it. So, I say it was a moral experience. It, it's quite obviously a moral experience if you look at, the, at Luke's account of it in the Acts of the Apostles. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What is that but a moral experience? Paul made a journey into the heart of darkness, not because he meant to, uh, but because he did. And, and he awoke at the end of that journey and realized what it was that had caused him to do that. He realized that sin had taken advantage of the law. Mm-hmm. And we'll get, these are all the, the really profound thing, insights that come later, but sin had taken advantage of the law and made him a murderer. And he awoke from that. So, uh, we are... So what was he doing? At his moment of conversion, he was trying to use coercion and violence 
to redefine his cultural enterprise vis-a-vis those that were not part of it. Okay? Pick up the morning paper and see if you can find a story about people trying to use coercion or violence to redefine the cultural enterprise vis-a-vis those who are not part of it. Every other story you read. This letter is very relevant. Paul's experience is very relevant. It will be relevant, I'm sorry to say, a thousand years from now probably. The old eon is going to die kicking and screaming. But Paul is the one, 2,000 years ago, that, thanks to the revelation of the cross, was able to recognize what that's all about. And it would do us all a great deal of good to try to recognize it. Unfortunately, the extricating ourselves from it is not an act of cognition. We can't get out of it simply by having an insight into it. But if we rub up against this kind of literature long enough, it, the, the, the reflexes that give rise to that kind of craziness will begin to be dissolved. So I would say to understand, we have to understand Paul's conversion in order to understand Paul's passion. The difference between Paul's tenacity and the, and the ardor and heartfelt conviction of his opponent, for example, Peter and James, was that Paul had come by his conversion uh, the way he did. He had raised his sword like that when the when he had revealed to him what it was all about. And he suddenly realized that he what he was about to do. And uh, that was a very profound thing. And and as a result he was t- I think he was tenacious about his his version of the gospel precisely because of the nature of his conversion. So I want to go through a couple of I want to go through his conversion story, but two things before lead up to his conversion story. One is this is anthropological background for what he was doing. What was he doing? He was trying to redefine his cultural and religious enterprise by by redrawing the boundary lines that separated his privileged cultural and religious enterprise from those outside the pale. Okay. What's that mean? The, the place to begin for understanding that is in Numbers, book 25 of, I mean, chapter 25 of the book of Numbers. And that's the story of Phineas. And I've dealt with it here many times, but I think it's absolutely paradigmatic. So I want to uh, uh, call it up again before it. And this is a, this is a moment in Israelite history when the, the Israelite, the, the vivid uh, separation of the Israelite movement from its from its Canaanite uh, uh, neighbors had waned a little bit. And so there was this sort of blending going on. The rigid borders were not being enforced. And so uh, the, the text says this, the people gave themselves over to debauchery with the daughters of Moab. They invited them to their sacrifices of, they invited them to their sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down before these pagan gods. Yahweh's anger, of course, blazed. He was about to smite the Israelites for this, for this act of apostasy. And here's what happened. 
a man of the sons of Israel. By the way, they it was learned that this that Yahweh's anger blazed. It was learned at the door of the tent of meeting, which is the center of religious life. Suddenly, Moses announced that Yahweh's anger is blazing, and and uh, enormous destruction is about to be visited upon us all. A man of the sons of uh, the, a man of the sons of Israel came along, bringing the Midianite woman into his family under the very eyes of Moses and the whole community of the sons of Israel as they wept at the door of the tent of meeting. Now you got to see this. We have to see the social dynamic of this event. In the strictest sense, uh, insulated cultures always they may tolerate a stranger. They may warmly embrace a stranger under certain circumstances, but by and large, somebody from a neighboring tribe. The neighboring tribe is never a stranger. They're always the other. So the stranger is from Mars. The stranger was always somebody that was not a part. What made them a stranger was that they were not identifiable with the one's enemy tribe. And they were treated as though they were from Mars. But the foreigner, next door foreigner, was one kept one's own religious enterprise vivid by opposing him. So here now we have a breakdown of that, a, cri- a crisis of distinctions, to use Girard's terminology. Suddenly the cultural lines are blurred. And this gives rise to a tremendous sense of panic among those who are the arbiters or the presiders over culture. Because, And, and that's not an irrational panic. Now, if the idea of having a tradition that contains the truth becomes so watered down that it cannot contain enough truth to do us any good anymore, if that idea doesn't trouble you, then you shouldn't even read these stories because it's a troubling idea. It's possible to have the truth in one's tradition so watered down and so so compromised that it has no real revelatory power. So I think it's important not to completely deal with the this story as though it's just a story about people who are totally benighted and don't know, you know, anything or xenophobic or something. There's a there's some some there's something to this position. Okay, so it says Yahweh's anger blazed. And was about to fall on the on the Israelites themselves for this apostasy when the following event took place. And I want to analyze this event because I think it's a, a backdrop for understanding Paul. A man of the sons of Israel came along, bringing a Midianite woman into his family under the very eyes of Moses and the whole community of the sons of Israel as they wept at the door of the tent of meeting. Now they're weeping. Don't get the wrong idea when it says weeping. They were not over there crying sad tears. They were wailing. And and to understand the background of this, to get a feel for what this story is describing, you have to remember this is wailing. And it's wailing because there's a real, that it's just been announced that there's going to be massive bloodshed as a result of this apostasy. And there's wailing going on because the bloodshed is is going to be uh, widespread enough so that people are already anticipating its consequence. So that's what the weeping at the tent of meeting means. All right. 
And then it says, so the man Israelite walks in with his Midianite concubine. When he saw this, Phineas, the priest, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, stood up, left the assembly, seized the lance, followed the Israelite into the alcove, and there ran them both through the Israelite and the woman right through the groin. And the plague that had struck the sons of Israel was arrested. In the plague, 24,000 of them had died. Now, this is very interesting, I think. There's no mention of plague until the sacred violence occurred. And what's so interesting about that is that the truth is that the myth that justifies the sacred violence, the myth that that uh, perpetuates the sacralization of the violence, if I could say it that way, is born of the violence. We tend to think that myths come along and myths justify something, and then we allow, and, be, and, and under the sort of moral license that the myth gives us, we enact the violence. But in actual fact, what happens is that the violence is so riveting and so cathartic that it produces in us the mental precondition for the acceptance of the justifying myth. In other words, violence has the effect of of uh, erasing certain mental and moral uh, qualifications. And in the and in at the moment that those are erased, the myth that justifies this violence that erased them becomes plausible. So, so I find it interesting in this story that you'd hear nothing about the plague until after the murder has happened, and then you find out. Which, if this were really mythological literature, it wouldn't be that way. If this were if this were see mythological literature always is better at camouflaging this than this is. But this literature is so clumsy when it tries to mythologize its violence that you get these little fissures and you can see what's actually happening. By the way, when the Bible and other ancient texts talk about plagues in a social context, they're not talking about medical epidemics. They're talking about violence, human violence, most of the time. it's it, one, We have every reason to read that into the story. But these are, whatever was going on, we don't know. And, and it says 24,000, those are crazy numbers, no doubt. But the point is that the the notion that this violence stopped the plague was a notion that enters the story, interestingly, after the violence. Just to go back here for a second, I don't want to take too much time with this story, but go back here. It, said, when it, said, it says, when he saw this, Phineas got up and seized the lance and went and got him in. When he saw what? Well, you could say, well, when he saw the Israelite and, and his concubine walking into the camp. And that's maybe so. But it says the man walked in with his Midianite woman into his family under the very eyes of Moses and the whole community of the sons of Israel as they wept at the door of the tent of meeting. What if what Phineas saw was the eyes of Moses and the whole community of the sons of Israel as they wept at the door of the tent of meeting. When he saw this, in other words, what if the provocation to do this, to what extent, I would say, is the provocation to do this born of the realization that the community is entirely focused on this couple? You see, what if they had walked in and the Moses 
and the entire community of the sons of Israel were looking the other way, weeping. Would it have ended the plague? Not a chance, whatever the plague was. You see what I'm saying? In other words, uh, there's a cathartic violence in which everybody participates vicariously. And that's what brings this so-called plague to an end. Okay, now there's one last thing, and that is that Yahweh speaks to Moses and says, Phineas, the priest, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, has turned my wrath away from the sons of Israel because he, he was the only one among them to have the same zeal as I have. For this, I did not make an end in my zeal of the sons of Israel. In reward for his zeal for his God, he shall have the right to perform, to perform the ritual atonement over the sons of Israel. Now, this is quite extraordinary. He earned the right to be a priest performing the atonement ritual. What is the atonement ritual? It's where you take the sins of the community, you pile it on the scapegoat, you run the scapegoat out of town. Now, what was going to happen is that is that uh, widespread violence was going to be unleashed by Moses and Aaron from the tent door of the tent of meeting on the apostates. So, violence was warded off, large violence was warded off by choosing one, or in this case two, victims and sending them out. You know, Caiaphas says it's better that one should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed. This story is a manifestation of that. It's the focusing of all of that violence. It's the opposite of a class action suit. You know, that lawyers who file class action suits, they have three clients. These three clients represent three million people. And now they want to, you know, sue the people. Well, in this instance, these, these people are the apostates. They represent all the apostates. They bear the sins of all of them. See, this is the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. You just dump your sins on him and get him out of here. And so, because Phineas saw that opportunity and seized it, he's made a priest because, hey, he knows how to do this. He knows the process. He's got the formula. What Paul calls this eon, this eon, this eon is the, is the reign of death for Paul. And in the reign of death, the most you can do is to make sure that the death that restores order is the death of one whose, whose culpability is at least plausible. You see what I mean? You can't get out of the reign of death. You're always in the business of Satan trying to cast out Satan. It's always an attempt to move around within that system to find somebody that will take the rap. And what you do is you go from uh, absolute arbitrary selection of a victim to in this elaborate sort of cultural development to more and more refined selection of victims until you get to a place where you select only the absolute certified uh, evildoer. But the process is still the same. This story is so rich, I think, because it shows you an event which you cannot categorize. It's possible to see Phineas's murder of these two as a variant, a variation on mob murder. There's only one executioner, but clearly if you read this text here, which is that under the very eyes of Moses and the whole 
uh, community of the sons of Israel as they wept at the tent of meeting, you realize that he is an executioner on behalf of the community, that he is performing the execution in a public way so that it is a variation on mob murder. The second thing is, is that it is a ritual human sacrifice, but it's not happening in the context of a ritual. It's not happening liturgically. It's not a prescribed ritual. Had it been a prescribed ritual which said, well, put him on the altar and cut his heart out, then the alarm bells would have gone off because Israel was opposed to ritual sacrifice. But it's clearly human sacrifice, but it's just taking place just enough off-center from the cult. So the tent of meeting is over there, right? It's just off-center enough so that it's not recognized as ritual human sacrifice. But it certainly has ritual characteristics. There's a kind of... You see? Okay. And thirdly, it has elements of criminal justice. That is to say, he, Phineas spotted a culprit, the, the culprit, or certainly one that would represent the culprit. This is like the reverse of uh, class action suits, you know. <laughs> Instead of this guy representing everybody who's been offended, he represents everybody who's been offending. You see? So, so you get one event. This is why much makes this Hebrew literature so powerful. One event which is in which you can see mob murder, ritual human sacrifice, and the uh, rudiments of criminal justice all in one event all of those things take place under the dom- under the dominion or the reign of death and that's what Paul's talking about and Paul knows that because he's been where Phineas has been the letter to the Romans has to be read in conjunction with the letter to the Galatians and the letter to Galatians is is in part, an account of of certain things that happened in the early church, which for which Luke gives another account in the Acts of the Apostles. So what I want to do is go to Acts, and then go to Galatians, and that'll set us up for for Romans. So in chapter seven, we have the the, the sermon of Stephen and the stoning of Stephen. And the reason I'm telling you about the Stephen, as you know, the reason I'm telling you about Stephen's stoning is because Saul. Paul's Jewish name, Saul witnessed the stoning and approved it. And and shortly thereafter, he had his conversion. Stephen was a Samaritan. Now, the Jews already distrusted the Samaritans. They were regarded as, as kind of religious half-breeds who never quite got it. And so they he was coming from the margins. They distrusted the Samaritans. And he was coming speaking of a Christian truth and so they were in no mood to listen to him. But I would say that what Stephen is doing, or at least what Luke, the words that Luke is putting in Stephen's mouth, are words, the effect of which is to hand the listeners the essence of the tradition that they think he's destroying with his message. In other words, the, the, the message... Stephen is delivering is the essence of the tradition that they think that message is destroying. And in that sense, it's a tremendously uh, important passage 
in Scripture, I think. But in any event, Stephen starts, it says that uh, they, Stephen's opponents got some, some people to say, again, false accusations, just like Jesus' uh, accusers in the, in the synoptics. They got people to say that Stephen had said blasphemous things against Moses and against God. Again, just like the accusations against Jesus. And so the guy, so the the accusers come up and they say, um, "This man is always making speeches against this holy place and the law. This holy place being the temple and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus, this Nazarene, is going to destroy this place and alter the traditions that Moses handed down to us. Destroy our temple and alter our traditions. Again, we have to feel their anxiety. I tell you, if I was, if I seriously thought that somebody." could fundamentally alter the traditions that have been handed down to me and keep my grandchildren from receiving them, I could get pretty worked up. You see, so we shouldn't, we should try to feel a little of this tension. But the truth is that Stephen is actually handing them that tradition. He's interpreting it and handing it to them and giving it new life. All the members of the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. Now, remember back Moses and all the sons of Israel weeping at the tent of meeting, glaring at the Israelite and his concubine coming in. In other words, the the social diagram, it's the same social diagram. Suddenly, they're looking at intently at Stephen, the whole community. When are they looking at him? At the moment the accusation is made. So, they, all the members of the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. But Luke is writing this, and Luke is writing it in the aftermath of the revelation that deconstructs it all. So, Luke says, the members of the Sanhedrin all looked intently at Stephen, and his face appeared to them like the face of an angel. Now, I think it appeared to Luke as the face of an angel. Who's an angel? The angel is the one who can carry God's message. The angel is the one who can speak the God's truth. And who can speak God's truth in this setting? This is my friend Andrew McKenna calls it calls this the victim's epistemological privilege. As soon as they're staring intently at him, now he can speak the truth because he has been expelled from their community, which is now in the process of generating its myth. And its myth is the 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 validity of the violence they're about to unleash on him. And he's been expelled from it. And from that position of the expelled one, he can see it for what it is. So he's angelic at that moment. In the etymological sense, he's able to speak God's truth. And these people are about to kill him in the name of some other God. In the name of the God of righteous violence. So I think it's... I don't want to dwell too long. Anyway, the priest says, These are all, this is all what comes out in Romans, what I'm talking about here. The priest says to him, Is it true? Have you, have you, uh, 
blasphemed against Moses and so on. And just like as Jesus does in the Gospels, he does not answer the question on the level it's asked. He says, My brothers, my fathers, listen to what I have to say. The glory of God appeared to our ancestor Abraham. And then he starts his story. What in the we don't get this because Paul, Luke, who wrote this, you know, had learned so much from Paul, and he was writing this long after Paul had written. Um, they said, are you blaspheming Moses? Who's Moses? Moses is the author of the Torah, the law. He's the giver of the law. Are you blaspheming Moses? And, and Stephen does exactly what Paul does. He says, you want to talk about Moses. Moses, 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 Moses. Let's talk Abraham. Let's talk Abraham. You say, we're sons of Abraham. Moses, 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 Moses. Well, if we're sons of Abraham, let's talk Abraham. He leapfrogs. And this is something that the, that the, that the Christians learned from Paul. Paul was a rabbinical uh he was trained in rabbinical argumentation. He was very good at it. He knew how to handle these arguments. And when the question of the Mosaic Law came, Paul always trumped it by saying, let's go to Abraham. Abraham was faithful before circumcision, before Jewish identity, before the Torah. And if we're sons of Abraham, we have to be that. See? What does it mean? It means faith. Okay. So that it was a it was a move that Paul made with extraordinary power, and Stephen is simply making it here because he's speaking words that Luke is putting into his mouth, and Luke learned it from Paul. Anyway, then he goes on. He says Abraham. And then he goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. And Moses. People didn't follow Moses, and so on. He talks about the golden calf story. And, uh, and so on and so forth. You stubborn people, uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Can you name a single prophet your ancestors never persecuted? They killed those who foretold the coming of the upright one. Now, think about, and then he says, and you have become the murderers of, of the upright one that the prophets foretold. But, okay, I just want to look at a couple of things here. They killed those who foretold the coming of the, the upright one as the crucified one, Christ. So let's say, you kill the prophets foretold, you kill the prophets who fore, you kill those who foretold the coming of the crucified one. I'm changing the crucified so you get to what I'm trying to point out here. What does that mean? If you rephrase it, you get it. What does prophecy mean? You kill the, or put it this way, those who were lynched by their indignant communities foretold the coming of the crucified one. It's not foretold in the sense of Isaiah had Jesus in mind when he was writing those passages, uh, or Jeremiah. But the prophets who were persecuted foretold the, the revelation of all of that, which the cross is. They were the prefiguration of the ultimate revelation of the cross. Those who tried to bring the essence of the message were were castigated as its betrayers and cast out. 
And then finally, only the only those cast out could speak the truth. And that's why the logos of the cross is the deconstructing, revelatory truth par excellence. All this is, I'm saying it just straightforward, this is all in the background of Paul's thinking. And it's, and it's infused uh, Luke's thinking too. And then it says, they were fur- infuriated when they heard this and, the gra- and ground their teeth at him. So if you're taking the, the if you're measuring this, the sort of the, mo- the pulse of the mob, you say they, the Sanhedrin all looked at him intently, right? And then they snarl, and then they grind their teeth. And then you say, oh, it's heating up. It's getting to this place. But notice, when that heats up, you still you get the, this, the dialectic between the intensity of the mob's sacrificial vortex and the revelatory power of its victim. So one verse says, they were infuriated and they ground their teeth at him. And the next verse says, Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at God's right hand. There's the victim's epistemological privileges. It's absolutely incredible. The more they expelled him in, in not physically now, but metaphysically, the more he could see the truth and become its expression. And then Stephen says, Look, I see heaven thrown open. And they, what do they see? They see, I don't know how we'll do this, they see the gates of hell opening up. They, they see this, this monster that they're about to kill. And he says, I see heaven's gates thrown open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, and all the members of the council shouted and stopped their ears with their hands. This is the, this is too true. See, what he has seen is the face of the living God, and what they have, what they are experiencing, is the is the God of the primitive sacred, who's about to consume another victim. The God of the primitive sacred is always convening and reconvening culture by consuming victims. So they stopped their ears, and then they made a concerted rush at him, thrust him out of the city, and stoned him. They stopped their ears because they can't, the voice of the victim, they cannot hear the voice of the victim. It has to be, and if it's, and if it's a lucid voice, and it's speaking in the name of the God they think they're killing in the name of, they can't hear it. So, they cast him out, and they stoned him. And the, you know, stoning is a little bit like caning in Singapore. You know, it's hard work. So they took their cloaks off and threw them down. The, the witnesses are the first to start the stoning, you know. Because this may take a while, you know. 
and uh, it's a lot of hard work. So they took their cloak off and threw, them, threw their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning him, Stephen, as he fell into the hail of these stones, prayed out loud, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I think that's the key to it all. Because that, you see, if the victim dies, making an obscene gesture at his victimizers, you know, cursing them, calling down wrath, you know, vengeance and so on, that's not going to deconstruct the myth that justifies the violence against them. But if he dies, praying that their violence not be held against them, that has a tremendous power, deconstructing power. It's exactly what Jesus does from the cross. Forgive them for they know not what they do. It's exactly the same thing. And it has the exact same effect. It undermines the myth that justifies the violence in a very profound way. Gerard says, since the truth about violence will not abide in the community, but must inevitably be driven out, its only chance of being heard is when it is in the process of being driven out, in the brief moment that precedes its destruction as the victim. The victim has therefore to reach out at the very moment when his mouth is being shut by violence. But this must not take place in the dark, hallucinatory atmosphere of that violence. There must be witnesses who are clear-sighted enough to recount the event as it really happened. When Girard says there must be witnesses who are clear-sighted enough to recount the event as it really happened, it means there must be somebody there who hasn't fallen totally under the justifying myth. And you look back at stoning of Stephen and at the crucifixion. At the crucifixion, there was nobody. That The women were there, but they were social non-entities. There was nobody. Peter abandoned him. Finally, the cock crows, and Peter remembered. Ah, and here Saul approves the killing. So in both cases, you get a momentary total eclipse of lucidity, an eclipse that doesn't last very long. And this is the key to understanding the world in which we live. For example, when people look, I you know I, you know I give the kind of talks I give, and I say to people, look. Here's what's happening in the world. The Christian revelation is destroying all these myths of sacred violence. And people say, you've got to be kidding. All I can read about in the paper is episodes of sacred violence that seem to be kept catching up everybody in their vicinity. And, so, and you're sitting here telling me it doesn't work, it's not going to work anymore. The pattern is precisely this. Of course, we get if it comes our way, the chances are we'll get totally caught up in it. It's just as caught up in it as the people that we read about in Bosnia and Rwanda and Northern Ireland and all over the place, you see. Just as caught up in it. But the question is, how long will it last? And I think it's the, 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 the New Testament says, both in the case of the crucifixion and the case of stoning of Stephen, is that there's a momentary total eclipse but that it doesn't last, that the cock crows, or that suddenly Paul finds himself on the road to Damascus and hears himself called a persecutor, and the whole thing deconstructs. And I think that's the world we live in, not the world that's, oh, well, suddenly people are not going to do that anymore. They're going to do it aplenty. But it won't have any sustaining social effects because the cock will crow. Uh, 
and and the and the community brought together by that riveting moment of shared violence will fall asunder. Okay? That day a bitter persecution against the church in Jerusalem began and everyone except the apostles scattered to the country districts of Judea and Samaria. And Saul began doing great harm to the to the church. And he went from house to house arresting both men and women and sending them to prison. He went to the high priest, asked for letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, and then he was going to go to Damascus and round up these these uh, apostates. And on the road to Damascus, you know, the light shone, the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? And uh, he fell to the ground. Who are you? I am Jesus whom you have been persecuting. Get up and go to the city, and there you will be told what to do. It's exactly what the voice of God says to Abraham and Moses. Get up, go that general direction. You'll hear more later. At the burning bush, God says, "Go to, go to Egypt, free my people." God speaks to Abraham, "Leave your father's house and so on. Go into the city, and you'll be told what to do." Meanwhile, Ananias receives a vision which says, "You must go to Saul." Who has uh, who's at the house of Judas, and uh, lay hands on him and cure him of his blindness. He was struck blind for three days. And Ananias says, uh, "Wait a minute, Lord. Let's make sure we're on the same page here. <laughs> this is Saul we're talking about, right?" <laughs> and uh, he said, "And so the the voice of the Lord, according to Luke, says." Um, this go for this man is my chosen instrument to bring my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and before the sons of Israel. Now, just think about that. Why do we need Saul, the persecutor, to bring this message? Because we need who's going to understand this message? You see what I mean? Who's really going to understand it? Nobody understands it until until the, the only the only entree into Christianity, I think, is the recognition that I am a crucifier. That I live, that my life uh, is one that I'm the great beneficiary of all the crucifixions, and that I participate in them directly and indirectly all the while. But here you have somebody who so glaringly fits the profile. And you have the, the voice of the risen Christ saying, this is the instrument I'm going to use. Because he, because why? Well, because he'll know what it's about. So Ananias lays hands on Saul. The scales fall from his eyes, and he gets up and revives himself. Luke gives a lot more biographical detail than Paul does. Paul's not interested in biography, most especially his own but not even Jesus' biography. He hardly ever mentions it. And his own version of his own, uh, the tiny little reference to it in Galatians of his conversion, he says the following. Not, not only are there no biographical, very few biographical details, there's zero psychological ones. So Paul, Paul has, there's no way, I think, to come to grips with Paul's thinking psychologically. So he says in Galatians, 
It was not from any human being that I received the gospel, and I was not taught it, but it came to me through the revelation of Jesus Christ. It came to me. It was revealed to me in my conversion. It simply came to me. Now, why would it come to him? Because it, it came to him at the moment, you might say, when the sword, it came to him the same, at the same moment that it came to Abraham. Abraham raised the, the knife to plunge into Isaac, and the angel said, don't do that. Be a biblical person. Be biblical. Move away from that. And in a, in a very profound and radical sense, that's Paul's experience. He's caught in the same posture. And so he said, it was revealed to me I was in no hurry to confer with any human being or to go up to Jerusalem to see those who were already apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia, and later I came back to Damascus. Only after three years did I go up to Jerusalem to meet Cephas. Cephas is Peter's uh, Greek name. I stayed there 15 days with him, but did not set eyes on any of the rest of the apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Okay, now what he's trying to say to the Galatians is, I didn't need them to tell me what Christianity was. They knew Jesus. James was his brother. Peter was his closest disciple. I didn't need them. I didn't need them to tell me what it was. I know what it is. How did he know? Yeah. Look at his conversion. Look at his profile. He knows what it is. But he says he went there uh, to confer with them. And the reason he conferred with them is because there was some tension already, even in the early days. There was tension because Paul was out converting Gentiles. And the great crisis in the church in the first century was, is it going to be a, to what's the relationship between Judaism and Christianity? So this is Galatians still. I traveled to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus with me too. My journey was inspired by revelation and there in private session with the recognized... Now this is a fun passage to read because this is Paul starting out with a simple discourse. You know, Again, he's walking up and down the, the scriptorium. Is that the word for it? Uh, with the, his, his uh, scribes taking... He's walking. They start that casually, telling oh, how it happened. Well, I did this and that. And then you can see the blood pressure rising. And then start his sentences just explode, and they fracture, and they go all over the place, and they cancel each other out. And he just, and yet the poor scribe, you can just see what must have been going on. You know. So he says, it starts off very slowly. I took Barnabas and Titus, and my journey was inspired by revelation. And there, in a private session with the recognized leaders, I expounded the whole gospel that I preached to the Gentiles. Although Titus, a Greek, was with me, there was no demand that he should be circumcised. But, because of some false brothers who, were secret, who had secretly insinuated themselves to spy on the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, intending to reduce us to slavery, 
people we did not defer to for one moment or the truth of the gospel preached to you would never have been excuse me or the truth of the gospel preached to you would have been compromised in other words he, he suddenly gets he remembers these people and he gets angry God it's fun. what's funny is he says nobody asked that he be circumcised but because some false brothers who had secretly insinuated themselves to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus intending to reduce us to slavery you know what that means probably relieving themselves one of these guys is looking over and seeing that Titus is not circumcised it's this kind of this is what we're talking about here Somebody's checking it out. And Paul remembers that, and he's just saying, and he can't he can't keep his thought. He makes George Bush look like the greatest. Uh, he, he makes George Bush look like uh, look like uh, Winston Churchill. But then he kind of catches his breath. But those who were recognized as important people, and here he goes again, catching his see, he's thinking. He gets into these sentences, and he thinks, okay, I said it. This guy's writing it. He's, we don't have anything to erase this stuff. <laughs> there's no, there's no whiteout. You know what do you do? You say it. You got to just keep going. So he says, those rec- So he says, uh, but those who were recognized as important people, whether they actually were important or not, there is no favoritism with God. Those recognized leaders, I'm saying, had nothing to add to my message. And when they acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, then James and Cephas and John, who were the ones recognized as pillars, offered their right hands to Barnabas and me as a sign of partnership. We were to go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So they worked out this compromise. And the compromise was Cephas, Peter, John, Peter, James, and John said to, to Paul, why don't you just go as far away as you can get and don't call us, we'll call you. You see, that yeah, was like they... Paul was such a tenacious uh, 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 articulator of his position that they were completely cowered by it. Well, on the other hand, they didn't want to wrestle with the implication of what he was saying. So they said, fine, you just go on out there and we'll continue to do our thing and the less we know about what you're doing, the better. 